right now we're in a series called God Why, where we are just slowing down to bring that question that we sometimes bring to God, lying in our beds, looking at the ceiling fan as it spins and saying, God, what are you up to? Why does this hurt so bad? Why does the pain feel like it's being stretched out and lengthened and just, just gets longer and longer? God, what are you doing? Last week, as we began in Romans 8, we, we looked at verses 18 to 25 where God like lays out that our present agony is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. But the question that leaves us with is, am, am I just called to just, just grin and bear it? Just, just toughen up and handle it. Just, just, just change how you think about suffering and it's going to be okay. Change the timeline that you look at. That passage does call us to look at, at suffering and say, it is not worth comparing what God is actually up to in me and what's going to come in and through my life. But, but is that all that God has for us? The reason that we're slowly going through Romans 8 is because that's not all that God has for us. If we were to stop there, then we would just go, oh, okay, I'm supposed to change my thinking. But man, when the pain gets longer and it's been months, it's been years, it's been a decade, and it hasn't stopped hurting, and the diagnosis has not gone away, and that painful relationship has never healed, what else does God have to say to us in the middle of that silence when we say, God, why? So go ahead and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Today we're going to be looking at verses 26 through 30. Because what, what often happens is that when we get in the middle of suffering that is stretched out, is we begin to feel like I am absolutely alone in this suffering, that it's not going to change, nobody else is feeling this, and it, it's not going to get better, but I feel like, the, for me, the worst part is when I feel alone. And Romans 8, 26 through 30 hits that, that question. When we let, say, God, why? God, why am I alone? God, why are you leaving me alone in this? This is what God has to say, verses 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. God, as we open your word, we want to hear your we want to know how you speak to us in the middle of the agony that we deal with. The, the agony that we are dealing with now, that we have dealt with in the past, or that we will deal with in the, in the future. God, speak to us very clearly from these verses. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans 8, 26 through 30 sometimes gets thrown around as a, a little Band-Aid verse that you just slap on and it's going to be okay. But what I want to do is I want to go slowly through this and show you that this passage calls us to turn our face toward God because He is actually working for us, alongside of us, and in us in our suffering. We are called to turn our face toward God in suffering. 
That, that question of God, why, is actually the right question because actually God is coming to be near to us in the middle of that agony. In verses 26 through 30, lay this out for us. And I want to show you three reasons that we are called to turn our face toward God in the middle of suffering. Turn our face, verses 26 through 27 says, turn your face toward God because the Spirit helps in our weakness. Turn your face toward God because the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Verse 26 says, likewise, or in the same way, which we need to stop and say, what is he saying? What is this likewise? What's the idea that he's getting at here? Verse 25 lays out for us that we are, called, we are saved in hope. And so we're called to suffer in hope. And, and so Paul is calling our attention and saying, in the same way that you were saved this way and called to suffer in this way, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, calling to our mind that just as it is the Spirit who came convicting us of sin, pointing us to the majesty of Jesus so that we could be saved, it's the Spirit also who comes alongside us in the middle of our suffering. So just like you were saved in hope and suffer in hope, in the same way you were saved by the work of the Spirit and you were helped in the middle of suffering by that same Spirit. There's, there's some more things that we're going to unpack, but I, we can't go forward unless we stop and realize that this passage says this agony is real and it is severe and it may be lifelong, but the Spirit comes to help us. It's a person. It's not just a band-aid. It's not just a saying that might be helpful. It's not a God who is far off, sitting on a throne, not caring about us and saying, come on, hang in there. You can do this. It's going to be okay. He actually comes and helps us in our weakness. This is the Spirit that helps us in our weakness. But notice what he, this, one of the primary ways that the Spirit helps us is that we don't know what we ought to pray for. And so the Spirit comes alongside us, praying for us. Because the Spirit knows what we, what we need. The Spirit knows that in our weakness, we don't have the wisdom of God. We do not know the will of God. God, I don't know how this can, should turn out. And so the Holy Spirit comes Praying for us in this, this agony that we feel with this weakness of we don't even know what to ask for. I don't know about you, but most of the time I actually do know what to ask for. At least I think I do. God, end this. Stop this. You can do something about this. You can change this situation. You can change this, this disability. You can change this problem. But this passage says that in the middle of that agony, God does not leave us alone. And he comes alongside praying because we don't have any idea how and what to pray for. This passage says that God knows what we need and sends the Spirit to pray for us with wordless groans. I think groaning is often the, the right description for how I feel in suffering. And I don't know if you're that way, but my kids know that when dad is really troubled, his mind is somewhere else, that often there's a, just a low groan that comes out as I think, as I'm anxious, as I fret, as I worry, as I, I, I try to say, how do I fix this? What can I say? What can I do to fix this? This passage says, no, the Spirit himself intercedes with, for us with wordless groans because he knows the will of God. This passage right here calls us to turn our face toward God because of the Spirit 
who is God, comes to help us in our weakness. The Holy Spirit comes to us in our trouble, not leaving us alone, not just speaking some truth to us, hey, this, this will fix it, but instead coming alongside us, groaning along with us, but his groans are according to the will of God. And so what we can know from this right here is that we can turn our face toward God because God's will is being done. God is answering the prayers of the Spirit who has come to dwell in us and alongside of us. We can know that God, through His Spirit, is doing the right and wise thing in all of these situations. And so when we feel alone In our suffering, these verses call us to say, no, the Holy Spirit is here with me right now, praying the things that I could not pray because I don't even know that this is the right way to go. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul is is talking about weakness that he feels and the weakness that the, the people feel. And he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Paul is calling to mind that this is the, this is the invitation of the Christian life, but God does not leave us alone in the middle of that, but sends the Holy Spirit to pray for us. Because God is showing his power in and through our, us in that weakness. So this passage that's calling us to turn our face toward God in suffering calls us to turn our face toward God, allowing the Spirit to pray the prayers that we would not know how to pray. And so will you turn your face toward God this week? Those of you that are suffering with great fear and great anxiety, those of you that are facing financial difficulty and don't know how you're going to get out of this, those of you that are dealing with problems with your children or with your parents or with your extended family, that you just don't know how this is ever going to get fixed, will you, in the middle of this, turn your face toward God? Because the Holy Spirit is coming alongside, praying the prayers that you would not even know to ask. Those of you that are suffering from a, a pain, physical pain that's gone on for a short period, for a long period. You don't know how it's going to end. The diagnosis seems like it's piling up and there are so many things wrong. Where do we start? This passage says, will you turn your face toward God? Don't just say, oh, the future is going to be better. Oh, the kingdom is going to be glorious. But right now, God, the Holy Spirit has come to be with me in my weakness. The second way, the second reason that we are called to turn our face toward God in suffering. Verses 28 and 29 say, turn your face toward God because God is working all things together for our good. Turn your face toward God because God is working all things together for our good. Verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. This, this whole passage, this whole paragraph or two paragraphs, hinges on this, these words we know and we don't know. Paul's already said we, we don't know how to pray the way that we ought to pray. Verse 28 says, but we do know. 
we do know that God is working all things together for good for those who love him. For those who are called according to his purpose. This passage says we know that all things. All things. Work together for good. That God is intimately involved in all of the things that you and I are facing right now. All of the things that we have faced and all of the things we will face. And he is turning all things for our good. He's not saying put up with it because there's something that something else I care more about. There's not somebody else out there that I care more about them than I care about you. There's some situation out there that I care more about than I care about you. No, he is working all things together for the good of those who love him. So he's, he says we know. I'll be honest, in, in practice I feel often more like, well, I'm hoping, I'm, I'm believing, I'm trying to trust that God is working all things together for good. But this passage says we know he's working them together, not just because something good will happen, but something good will happen in my life. Something good will happen in my family. Something good is going to happen here with me. But he describes who, like, he works together for good. Who is he talking about? He describes them in two ways. Those who love God. And those who are called according to his purpose. Those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. So this is not just this, a social media verse that we just slap online and say, look, everybody, God is doing everything good in all circumstances. Nothing bad is happening in the universe. This passage calls us those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. He promises, I'm working for your good. So if you've come to Jesus, trusting in Jesus alone to save you, this verse is a promise that says God is working all these things for good, for my good. It's not just some, something that I'm hoping for, but that, that I can know that this is for me. And then Paul describes, this, because the reason we can know this, verse 29, because God, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, among many brothers. He, God's end in this is that he wants you and I to look like Jesus. He wants you and I to look like Jesus and enjoy the fellowship of brothers with Jesus. And so we can know that God is working all things together for our good because God's goal for us is to look like Jesus and have fellowship with Jesus and enjoy Jesus and inherit with Jesus the kingdom. So how do we turn our faces towards God? How can we say that we know? It's because the end that God has created and loved and saved us for is to look like Jesus and to enjoy Jesus. (coughs) Notice that in this, these two passages, notice that in these two passages, he says, we don't know how to pray as we ought, but we do know that God's working all things together for good. I feel like in my own life, I often reverse those. I often act like I know how to pray that I ought, but I, and I'm not sure God's actually working for my good. But this passage, he says, no, we don't know how to pray as we ought to pray, but we, we for sure know that God is working all things together for our good. This, this passage calls us by faith to say, I'm going to let go of my prayers. And I'm instead going to take hold of Jesus and the end for which God has loved and saved me. This, uh, this week is one of my weekend has been one of my favorite weekends of the year. I always, I always look forward to the end of February, the beginning of March, because I get to prune my fruit trees. And you, 
I'm saying that kind of jokingly. Thank you. I say that kind of jokingly. But all, all winter, I've been looking out when we have breakfast, lunch, and dinner out the window, and I see my favorite tree and how it's growing, and I get to dream the whole year of come February and come early March, I'm going to begin pruning and shaping that tree. It's going to set it up for growth this next year. And this year, the kids have kind of gotten old enough to like, Dad, why, do you, why are you so obsessed with pruning the tree? Why are you so excited about this weekend? And the reason that I get excited about this weekend is because without that, I explained to them this year, without that pruning, the tree would grow completely unruly, it would grow in the wrong direction, and it wouldn't produce fruit. That tree has got to be pruned. Some of the limbs are growing the wrong direction. They would grow back into everything else, shading out the fruit, <coughs> shading out the fruit, and so I've got to prune those out. Some of them are shooting down towards the ground or they're competing with the rest of them by growing too tall, too fast. And so they've got to be cut off because they're, they're going to misshapen, they're going to make the, I'm sorry, they're going, to, they're going to screw the tree up if I let them go. But this year I explained to the kids, but the other thing is, that even the branches that are growing well have to be pruned. They've got to be pruned. Because if you don't cut a third of the limb off, then the tree's growth is going to be stunted. It's never going to grow out as full as it should grow. It might actually grow so long that it actually breaks off. And it's not going to produce the fruit that we want it to prune. And so even the parts of the tree that look beautiful and that I love have to get that difficult work of pruning and get it cut off and get shaped and get changed because I love the tree and I'm looking forward to the apples and the peaches that we're going to get this next year. I have a friend who found an old apple tree, easily older than 25 years or more, but it didn't produce any fruit because it hadn't been pruned in years and years and years. And when, somebody, when he came along and pruned the tree the very next year, that tree began bearing fruit. It had been ignored and it had been neglected. And so it, somebody had to come along who loved the tree enough to cut at it. To do the painful thing that, well, why would you cut a tree that looks good and that's growing the way it's supposed to? Because I want the tree to grow better and I can envision that. And this passage, Romans 8, says that God is actually doing that in our lives. In the middle of everything that happens. And so we can know that God is working all things together for our good. All things together for our good. Those things that are growing in the right way, they might have to be cut a little bit short so that there can be good fruit. There might be things in our hearts and in our lives that are growing in the wrong direction. And God uses all things because he loves us and he is dreaming great dreams of fruit in our lives. He is dreaming of the moment that we look like Jesus and enjoy the fellowship of brothers with Jesus. And so how do we know? We know by faith and we know because God has promised to us he will work all things together for good. And so we are called in the middle of our suffering in your suffering right now, in my suffering right now, we are called to turn our face toward God because God is working all things together for our good. And so, those of you that are lonely, are you gonna, can, can you turn your face toward God and say, God, there is something that you are dreaming and doing in my life and I believe that you're not doing this out of hate, out of spite, or because somebody else matters more, but you actually love me enough to do this. Those of us, those of us that, that struggle with great pain, depression, and despair, 
We are called in the middle of this not to stop the feeling, but instead can we turn our faces and say, God, you're working all these things together for my good. Oh, God, I'm going to trust that, that you are turning all things together for my good. I'm reminded of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Sold into slavery by his brothers. They fake his death. Then he's lied about and he's put in prison. And then he gets forgotten and he, he just goes so incredibly low. The story of Joseph's life is that this, but God was with Joseph. But God was with Joseph. And you go, God, if that's what it means to be with somebody, to be sold into slavery and to be lied about and to be put into prison and to be forgotten. But then God was with Joseph and raised him up to be the second in command in Egypt, saving many lives, including the lives of his family. After his dad died, his brothers came to him, afraid that he would finally take revenge. And what Joseph told them is, you meant this for evil but God meant it for good. Can we begin to turn our faces toward God in suffering and say, God, God, these people, Satan, the the world, this situation is meant for evil, but I believe that you mean it for good and for my good, and so I'm going to just keep walking this road. I'm going to keep walking with this road with my face turned toward you. The third reason that we are called to turn our face toward God in suffering, knowing that he is with us, nearby and for us, is we are called to turn our face toward God because God guarantees your end. God guarantees your end. Verse 30 says, and those he predestined, he he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Paul walks this road of predestined, called, justified, or made righteous, and glorified. These are verses that are given to people in the middle of suffering. Not, in, not to people that want to have theological arguments. It's, it's to people that are struggling and saying, God, why is the agony so incredibly great? Verse 30 says that God guarantees our end. And so we can turn our face toward him in the middle of suffering. That, that the end for which he has predestined and called and justified us is to be glorified. And the, 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 the point of this verse is to call to our mind that what God has promised us is inevitable. It's not, well, maybe this will happen. Maybe God will turn this towards my good. Maybe think good things are going to come from this. This passage is to call to suffering people that your glorification is as solid as your salvation. The, the end for which God has loved and called you is inevitable. God's not going to lose you along the way. God's not going to forget you along the way. He's not going to call you to be with himself, but then turn his attention towards somebody or something better. We can turn our face towards God because God guarantees our end. It is inevitable. And so when we walk these roads where we say, God, why? God, how long? I'm afraid. I'm not sure I'm going to make it. I feel like I'm drowning. This passage says that your end is assured. As I sit with people contemplating death, thinking about their own death and wondering, what is this going to be like? I'm afraid because I don't know what comes next. I don't know how this works. I've trusted in Jesus, but death, this final journey is so incredibly scary. This passage calls us 
to say that those he predestined and called and justified, he glorified. That he's not going to drop the ball here as we get near to the end. John Bunyan, his, in his book, Pilgrim's Progress, describes the end of the journey as a river that we cross that, to get from life to glory, to heaven, to, to life after death with God. And that it's the river that we have to cross. But what's so interesting in, this, in, the, in John Bunyan's telling of that story is that as some people cross the river, they feel like they're drowning and they sink. Some of them get in a boat and glide across and it's all okay and nothing bad, but some of them feel like they're suffocating. This passage says that whether we feel like we're drowning and suffocating or whether we're gliding on that river across to the other side, that Jesus guarantees to take us to be with him. He guarantees that he's going to make us look like himself and enjoy the fellowship of brothers. John 10, 27 says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my hand. So as we suffer, as we suffer, we are called to turn our face towards God because nobody's going to snatch us out of his hand. No job, no diagnosis. No difficulty, no despair, no depression, no worry, no pain is going to snatch us out of his hand. And so we can turn our face towards God in the middle of our suffering. We can be the the people who say, I don't know how to pray as I ought, but I do know that he's working all things together for my good and guarantees that he's going to bring me to be with him one day. We can say, I don't know, I do know. When I look at this passage, we see these three reasons to turn our face towards God in suffering because he is with us and he is working for us. But there is this tension where I'm much more prone to raging against God in my heart than turning my face toward him for the Spirit's help to pray. There's this tension because most of the time, instead of turning my face towards God, knowing that he's working all things together for my good, I say, God, how can this be good? What are you doing? Do you really love me? There's this tension in the passage because so often, instead of turning my face towards God, because I know that he says nobody will snatch me out of his hand, instead I say, God, I feel like I'm breaking up. I feel like I'm cracking up. I feel like I'm drowning. God, I feel like I cannot go on. What are you doing? And so this passage that says, turn your face towards God, begins, becomes this thing of guilt and shame for me. Because most of the time my face isn't turned towards him in faith. Where I say, God, I know that you're working all things together for my good. Instead, it's, God, I know how to pray as I ought. Why don't you do what I said? So where's the good news in a passage like this for people like you and me who don't suffer well? Where, where's the good news in this passage for people like you and me that don't suffer well? When we look at this passage, we can actually see the face of Jesus in it. Because the end for which God has loved us is to make us to be conformed to the image of his son. But not just a, hey, why don't you behave like Jesus? But Jesus came and fulfilled this passage for us. Removing the record of breaking the whole thing from us. And giving us a new power to turn our faces towards God. 
In this passage, we begin to see the face of Jesus because Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross, beaten within an inch of his life and suffocating to death, says, Father, why have you forsaken me? His, his, the, the words on his lips are, God, where are you? He's the one who turned his face towards God in the middle of the weakness that he did not deserve to bear. My weakness. Jesus is the one who turned his face towards God. Acts 2 says that you killed him, but God, but God was working in this. Jesus died on our behalf, working the very worst things possible for your advantage and for my advantage when the Son of God suffered and died in our place. This passage, we can, we can know that Jesus turned his face towards God. Because the the grave was not his end. He broke the power of the grave for you and for me. And so we can know that no death, no suffering will be the very end for us. He promises resurrection to you and to me. You say, how can this be mine? How can I know that this can be mine? How can I know that God is doing all of this for my good? When I've not behaved, when I've not suffered well, we can know that this is ours. Because we have repented of sin and trusted in Jesus alone to save us. This this passage is this gospel call. You can turn your face towards God in suffering. Because you have turned your face towards God away from sin. The story of the Bible is the story that God made the world and he made it good. And he put Adam and Eve in it to live as kings and to live underneath his, his rule and his reign. To shepherd and steward and care for the world. But Adam and Eve said, no, we do not want your kingdom. We do not want your laws. We do not want your rules. Actually, they said, we don't want your one rule because we will set up our own kingdoms. And so Adam and Eve and everybody after them were separated from God in the garden, destined for physical death and then ultimately death and separation from God in hell. But instead of leaving us there, the Bible says that God came to us, turning his face towards us, and Jesus lived the life that we should live, died the death that we should die, and was raised back to life so that all who turn away from sin, away from their own kingdoms, away from living their own way, and trust in Jesus alone, can know that God is now working all things for our good. And so if if you're here and you hear that, whether you've heard that, Many times, whether you've heard that for the first time, this, this passage is a call to not just suffer well, but to turn your face towards Jesus. And those of us that have already turned our face toward Jesus is in the middle of suffering. Keep turning your face toward Jesus. Keep turning your face toward Jesus. And so we're in this passage called to suffer with our faces towards God. We can begin to imagine what might change. But I don't think that we've understood the passage correctly if all we do is imagine this week getting better. Because some of us will still be sick. Some of us will still struggle with anxiety, crippling despair and depression. Some of us will still be estranged from loved ones. Some of us will still be lonely. This passage is not just a quick fix promise, oh, it's going to get better this week, but it's actually begin to imagine that this week I'm not alone, right? In my weakness, the Holy Spirit is with me, groaning with me, for me, in a way, and for, in a way that I would never do if left to myself. 
in this week, as I begin to imagine my week, I can know that God is actually intimately involved in all of the details, working them for my good. This week, I can begin to imagine that I can look towards God because He has His eyes on the end and He will not let me go. We're not called to just imagine circumstances changing, but actually a God who enters our circumstances with us and is working for us. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you that you loved us first, that you turned your face toward us in love and in mercy. And that right now, you are working all things for the good of those who love you. In Jesus' name, amen.